Um, so I just want to say, uh, and he's not going to like me saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> this cat could be doing a lot of other things with his time other than coming to Orange Beach to hang out with us and be with us. And I just want to say, bro, how grateful we are, man, that you would give up your time to come and spend time with us. And I thought to myself, honestly, man, even if you didn't preach this weekend, bro, your life and the way you live it has been such a testimony to us, to Jen and I and to our family of who Jesus is and what he is like, bro. And, and I really mean this not in flattery, but in sincerity, bro, that it is an honor, man, to have you be with us. And the testimony of Jesus, man, the essence of who he is, the way that he rests on you and he moves in you, and the way that when I listen to you, I can hear him. When I look at you, I can see him. It blesses me, bro, to know you and to be able to call you a friend and to be able to call you my brother. And so uh let's just honor mike as he comes come on man all right how is everybody yeah everybody doing well um it is not going to be my goal to belabor the point uh, and to try and take up what could be unnecessary time. Um, although I do, in a very real way, feel as if I have things um, that the Lord would desire for me to share with us. Uh, and I say us, right, because um, I see myself in the conversation. Uh, if you have a Bible or if you have the scriptures in any way, you can open up to Psalm 23. We will get there, no matter what it seems like along the way. <laughs> All right, we, we will get to Psalm 23, no matter what it seems like uh, along the way. Um, man, it's been a real joy to come and hang out with you guys and get to spend time in a variety of ways, right? All of the different types of time, uh, whether it be car rides or meals together or just time before or after meetings, um, walking to and fro, <laughs> right? Uh, whatever it has been, it's been a real, real joy. Uh, and I consider it to be a privilege to get to be here with Josiah and Jen uh, and their boys and uh, to think a couple of years ago uh, when we bumped into each other, I'll say it that way. Uh, my family and I, <clears throat> we were beach people, right? So we were going on a vacation and it, was, it wasn't really last minute, but um, we just hadn't yet been able to lock down a we do Marriott's, so we were looking for a Marriott, state of Florida, tried to work out a couple of different locations, three or four different places, didn't have the accommodations for the dates that we wanted. We ended up, for the first time ever, going to a Marriott property in Clearwater, Florida, which we had never been to, 
Uh, we had particular dates that we had to make it work just because of the way our life and schedule looks and things of that nature. So it was me and my wife, and at the time, our four kids, no, 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 yeah, at the time, our four kids, um, we hadn't yet had uh, little Elijah. Uh, I have a two-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, to some of you, that's not really a big deal. Uh, I'll be 42 in three weeks, or actually in two weeks. Um, and so we ended up at this Marriott, and I took my son to the gym with me one morning, and we came back after, whatever, we're on vacation, trying to get a workout in together. And I had left my AirPods in the gym, my case at least. And so I looked at Josiah, who's my oldest. Uh, he's 11. And I was like, he's my oldest son. And I said, hey, man, like, run back with me to the gym. I got to go get my AirPod case. And he was like, all right, Dad, all right, let's go. So we go back. We're coming down the elevator. And the doors open to the elevator, and standing in front of the elevator space is Josiah. And we hadn't seen each other in a little bit of time. And we ended up spending the next couple of days together with our families uh, on what we considered to be vacation time together. Uh, and it was just really special to get to be there together over those days. Um, in the pool, on jet skis sharing meals, uh, so really amazing to see the way the Lord works things together, and now to consider a few years later, to be here in what is the inaugural days of planting a family of fire, um, and so I feel honored even from the Lord to be a contributing voice in whatever small way or measure to be able to add to the things that the Lord is having you together here contend for and believe for and pay a price for together and bleed for. Um, man, history and God together, bleeding for the purposes of God. Man, I'm telling you, there's just certain prices that you pay together that are so precious and they forge something um, in the fire of devotion to the Lord and one another uh, that you just can't buy it, um, you can't manufacture it in other cheap plastic ways. Uh, it's just precious in the sight of the Lord. And so I feel really honored to be able to be here over these days. Um, my wife wanted to be able to make it. We have five kids now, four of them are in school. Uh, so I've got an eighth grader, sixth grader, fourth grader, and a pre-K four. I've got a two and a half year old at home. And my wife just found out a couple of weeks ago that we are 10 weeks now expecting. And so I'm catching a flight early tomorrow morning to be able to be present in Orlando for our church gatherings. And then we're doing a gender reveal with our kids after that. They are all team girl. They want a baby sister. Uh, they're all team girl. They really want a baby sister. And we'll see. Um, and so I consider to myself 42 10 weeks pregnant. You see, for some of us, that sounds like a massive inconvenience on the idea of what we would want our life to be. Um, and I'm not saying that like anybody or everybody in here is supposed to get pregnant and have more kids, right? That's not the way the conversation is going. Uh, so just calm down. Um, but what I am saying is uh, I just think in certain times or spaces in our life, we come to unique sticking points where 
the voice of God is off limits in certain areas of our life. It's just off limits. Lord, you can say a lot of things to me, but you can't speak into certain spaces or places. Um, your influence in particular areas of my life, even though we wouldn't communicate it this way as simply or clearly, your influence in certain areas of my life is no longer welcome. Like, I have things set up the way that I want them. I'm good here. Like, I'm believing you in other areas. I'm contending in other spaces. Uh, I'm longing for certain breakthrough or answers to prayer in other conversations. But there's just certain things about the way my life is. Um, This was me several months ago when the Lord started knocking on the door of our hearts and asking us if we would believe him again to have another child. And I was like, Lord... I was 40 with a newborn, and that gave me five. Like, I mean, things are getting a little ridiculous. Like, I mean, like, how long is this going to be a thing? I mean, like, for real. Like, uh, my kids already joke. They're like, Dad, when Elijah, so Elijah's two. They're like, when Elijah graduates high school, you're going to be 58 years old sitting in the crowd. You're going to be the oldest dad there. Like, people are going to think you're his grandpa. I'm like, well, whatever, but... My kids have been praying for a sibling for six months in our times together in devotion and one night, right? Because in the beginning, I was like, hey, listen, just stop. <laughs> like, yo, that's just not how it works. You know what I mean? Like, just, it's just not how it works. Like, no. And they're like, but you guys seem to be doing amazing and you seem to be great. And I'm like, no. Like, we have a lot of humans in our house. It's why we don't have pets, because we have a lot of people that we're responsible for. We don't need pets. I have people that that I'm looking after and taking care of. And one night, the Lord said, as they were praying, listen to them. And I was like, what? And he said, they're praying the evangelistic prayers of the church. And I was like, Lord, I, I don't understand. And he said, what they have experienced together in my presence in family." has been so amazing to them that they want to add more people to the situation. Wow. And I was like, like, Lord, that's not even fair. (laughs) So my wife and I started praying, and we said, man, if this is something the Lord wants us to pay attention to, I want to make matter the things that matter to the Lord. I want to make matter things that the Lord says matters to him. Right? This Psalm 45 company, this oily company, this oily people, they love what he loves and they hate what he hates. And he anoints them with the oil of gladness. And there's joy unspeakable and full of glory. And it's not this drudgery, burdensome, overwhelming, taskmaster, duty-driven type way of life. But when we come alive to things that matter in his heart... He gives us grace so that we can actually delight ourselves in the Lord. And then he can delight to give us the issues or the desires of our hearts. I mean, it's sort of the way that I I wanted to intro or segue uh, into what I feel the Lord wants me to share on tonight. Um, it, It would be my hope to take something that is very common, something that if not discerned, can be so practical and so ordinary that we would dismiss 
its grandeur or its splendor or its purpose and power in the midst of us. Uh, When Paul would plant works, there were particular traditions of sorts that he would institute. There were traditions that he would teach. Not the first Peter 1 type of traditions where Peter says, the blood of Jesus has set you free from the empty man-made traditions handed down to you by your forefathers. Not these types of traditions, but traditions that were life-giving. Traditions that had come from the heart of God and that fulfilled a particular purpose in God's people as they oriented their lives to a kingdom agenda in their moment, in their day. And not as if the list was exclusive to only these three, but there absolutely were three that Paul would, in his planting endeavors, institute from within church families and communities, the people of God. The first one would be the full gospel. The full gospel, according to Romans, which would climax with all of Israel shall be saved. Paul expected the churches that he planted, fostered, cultivated, that he related to, to know what was the message of the gospel. And it wasn't just for unbelievers, right? He tells them in Romans, in chapter 1, I long to come to you to preach the gospel to you. He's like, you have the problems that you have because you don't understand the gospel the way that you should. Right, I long to come and preach the gospel to you. So the first of the traditions would have been the full gospel. The second would be the Lord's Supper or the table of the Lord. And this will be our emphasis tonight. The table of the Lord. The Lord's Supper. And the third, again, not, not that the list is exclusive to only these three, but it absolutely includes these three. The third would have been dynamic meetings or spiritual gatherings. For prayer and prophecy. Times together as the people of God under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Where, as Corinthians encourages, each one would come to contribute something to the meeting. Not as a particular order of service, but out of our devotion to the Lord and the life and leadership of the Spirit experienced in the place of a corporate time together as the people of God. Where under the unction of the Spirit, we would come and recognize that we're not attending a meeting, we are the meeting. The church is not an event. The church is not something that you attend. The show just doesn't go on whether or not your butt is in the seat or not. Right? We recognize that the church is not an event. You couldn't possibly give me enough Bible verses to substantiate the church being an event. It's just not there. But because we approach the text with a preconceived idea or with a desire, we have to massage and in some ways manipulate what the verses are actually saying in order to satisfy the systems that we prefer. But if you only use Bible verses, you would recognize in Revelation 5 that the church is a people that have been purchased with blood. You would recognize that in Colossians 1, they are a people that have been redeemed from the dominion of darkness under the jurisdiction of the wicked one. They've been rescued from brokenness and corruption and the sway of the world and the system of the age. According to Ephesians 2, they're alive from the dead. A people are alive from the dead, not an event, not a building, not a property address, alive from the dead. A people alive from the dead. 
They've been taken out or from under the influence, the captivity, the slavery of rulers and powers and a self-indulgent way of life. According to Romans 6, they see themselves as alive from the dead as we've been exhorted. They see themselves as a people that have tasted the grace of the last Adam and are no longer bound or broken to the inheritance and the curse of the first Adam. We would recognize that as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that though they once were not a people, meaning that they were just like everyone else in the world, they were a part of the hostility. They were sin-saturated and sin-satisfied. They were broken and rebellious and desired to rule over their own lives. Their wants, desires, and demands were enthroned in the place of their pursuits. But now, beloved, not only are you a people, but you are the people of God. You just don't get to determine what kind of people you want to be. You're the people of God. Those of you that are born again. Those of you that are alive from the dead. Those of you that are redeemed, you're rescued. God has brought you up and brought you out of the pit that you were in and the miry clay. And he's put a new song in your mouth. If we use only the verses, we find out that the church is a people. Because this has been God's heart from the beginning. It's been to have a people that he can share himself with. This is what we get in the very beginning. And the desire is consistent at the beginning of the book and at the end. In the very beginning, we see God, uncreated, all-powerful, can do whatever he wants, with whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And in the beginning, meaning God created a time. He created a mechanism of sorts, a container, because there's something that he's longing for. And God is in the beginning, because God has no beginning and no end, alpha and omega. And God creates time because time is serving a purpose that God has. It's fulfilling a longing in the heart of God. It is aligned to what we would consider to be the eternal purpose of God himself. And God is in the beginning. And God creates a space. Did you know that God desires sacred space? He creates a space. He creates what we would consider to be a creation or a created order. Because the God that is everywhere is longing to be somewhere. We can look back across the timeline of history and recognize that theologically we know God is omnipresent. But there have been unique moments on that timeline where God has chosen to unveil himself. He's chosen to be uniquely present He's chosen to possess a people, to possess a place, to reveal of himself something of extravagance and grandeur. And though God is everywhere, there are undeniable moments where we can all say, I get it, God is everywhere, but God is absolutely here. Because God desires to be somewhere. And this is what we get in the beginning. We get God creating a garden of sorts. Because God longs for sacred space where he can share himself with people that he desires to enjoy forever and to have himself be enjoyed by them. Where he can unfold the knowledge of himself in an ongoing way. Where he can fellowship in sacred space. Where he can share of himself in intimate proximity an intimate interaction with people, his delights and his desires. 
And I shared earlier in our Q&A time that Eden was not for Adam, but Eden was for God. Because God was looking for a space where he could reveal himself and fellowship and enjoy the people that he was about to form for himself. The fact that Adam did not show up on the the storyline or the narrative as someone that was just inserted, but that was created, reveals to us that Adam was not formed to do his own thing, but he was formed to do the thing that God desired to have him in place for. And Eden was the space, the garden-esque order, where God wanted to walk in the cool of the day with the people. Eden was the place of God's habitation. It was the place where God longed to abide, to dwell, to be uniquely present. And Adam got to share this sacred space with God. You could view Eden as the first temple of sorts because we would be probably more familiar with temple language and temple purpose. You could view Eden as the first temple of sorts, the first tabernacle, the first space reference point where God longed to manifest himself, to dwell, to have a place of unveiling and interaction with people. Adam could be viewed as the first priest, the first regal agent of God, his intimate representative in the creation. Because if you look hard enough, you begin to realize that this is what priesthood is all about. Priesthood is about relationship and representation. Priesthood is about relating and representing. Relating to God the way that he desires and the way that he deserves to be related to. And then representing God the way that he desires and the way that he deserves to. It's the reason why when you look at the Ten Commandments after Sinai, it's all about priesthood. The commandments are a prescription for priesthood. The first three tells us that God deserves to be related to in a particular way. Have no other gods, don't worship idols, and don't take my name in vain. I'm holy, and I'm jealous, and I deserve a people that will relate to me the way that I long to be related to, the way that I deserve to be related to. The fourth is out of relating to God, it establishes a conviction where we believe that our life belongs to the Lord. God would have said, keep the the Sabbath and keep it holy. Because the Sabbath, you could view it as the, the wedding ring of the covenant. It's the visible experiential demonstration of my life belonging to another. It's the devoting or the consecrating of my life to God as protector and provider. It's what says to the rest of the world in all of their striving and hostility that I've actually come to this place of rest and found the land of promise. Jesus would have said, come to me. All of you that are weary, heavy laden, overwhelmed and burdened, trying to do it your own way, and I will give you rest. I will be your Sabbath, and I will be your land of promise. The fourth would be the Sabbath, which is out of relating to God. It establishes a people of posture and conviction. And then the last six would be the experiential side, how you relate to others in a shared way of life, and circumstances that are going to inevitably arise whenever you share your life with people. The Ten Commandments are about priesthood. 
It's the prescription for priesthood. It's about relating and representing. Because God desires a people of priestly posture. This was Adam's responsibility. Relate to me the way that I desire to be related to. Fellowship with me. And out of that fellowship and intimacy, I'm going to share with you a joy and an authority to where we're going to extend the boundaries of this sacred space to the, further, the furthest corners of what is this creation experience. Now, we recognize that Adam was there as an individual. I always joke with young single guys. I'm like, man, before Adam had an Eve, he had a job. <laughs> he had to tend to something and find faithfulness and responsibility and work before the Lord. But there was no compartmentalization. Everything was experienced and everything was stewarded out of a priestly posture. Adam's identity was priestly. We find that after the judgment and the exile from the garden, in Genesis 2, Adam's identity is a priestly reality. In Genesis 3, after the exile, we find that it's no longer priestly, but it's productivity. He says, you will now have to tend to the ground, and there will be thorns and thistles, and the reality that there will be a lack of production. This is what is going to define your life now, moving forward. And so, oddly enough, if we have not yet, through unconditional love, experienced this love that drives out fear, this love that actually baptizes us into what is our true identity, which is a priestly reality and order, that we define our lives by what we do more than who we actually are. And we try to work for the things that God is so outrageously, generously trying to give us and bring us into the experience of. And Adam was there, and as Adam was there, there was the evaluation that it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God adds someone to his life because priesthood is a corporate reality. Priesthood may be something that we tend to, in a Matthew 6 way, in an individual experience, but its most, uh, uh, its most powerful fulfillment is found in a corporate reality. Priesthood is for a people, not just a person. And we recognize that you can't have everything that there is to have in the revelation or in the knowledge of God all by yourself. You just can't. There is a, uh, there is a revelation of God that is reserved to the people of God in a corporate experience. There is a revelation that is reserved to the people of God. God saves people to make them a part of a people. Graduation is not isolation or amputation. We do to ourselves what Paul would consider to be one of the worst forms of judgment that a believer could experience. With the unrepentant brother, what did he say? He said, put him out. Put him out of where? Put him out of the fellowship. No longer eat with such a one. Don't share the table with such a one. Put him out of what is the covering of the people of God. 
But we recognize in a New Testament reality that what was the experience of the land order in the Old Testament being viewed as the place of God's dominion, where the banner of God and his authority rested over a people that he possessed for himself, where God's physical presence at times was represented in a particular place in the possessing of a people that he said belonged to him. Well, that same reality would now be brought over onto what is the experience of the church. So when Paul says, exile this brother from the community, it's the same type of judgment that they experienced when they would transgress the covenant in the Old Testament. And God would turn them over to their desires. And he would exile them from the land. We find in the beginning that God adds an Eve to Adam's scenario because our life is better together. We're not meant to walk this thing out alone. Right? And there's no amount of ministry popularity or ministry influence or results that is going to give you a unique exemption from what we believe is the biblical prescription. No man or ministry is greater than God's value system. But we've indoctrinated people to believe that if they just get popular enough in ministry, they can get rescued from the experience of the church. I'm too busy to be a part of a church. I'm too busy to actually be there. I'm in church services all the time. Bro, you don't get it. I'm connected to churches. I'm in gatherings all around the world. We give people a voice in the church that aren't actually a part of one. We allow influence and authority to people that aren't planted in what we would consider to be biblical community and family. And the biblical prescription, no man gets a unique exemption. Because graduation is not amputation. Where we cut ourselves out and off from relating to the body in the place of priesthood. And I get it. Not everything that's out there is doing it the way that the scripture actually prescribes. And in most cases, the, the biblical thing is not the cultural thing. The cultural thing is not the biblical thing. And so when you uh, confront people, confrontation is not always negative, right? Speak the truth in love. When you confront people on the biblical thing, because we've been so conditioned by the cultural thing, we find it offensive. And at times, try to label people as a cult when they're reading the Bible and trying to actually live it together. But in the beginning, we find that God desires a people that will relate to him from a posture of priesthood. Where the prioritization of presence and sacred space to share our lives with God is everything. This was the responsibility in the beginning. And the desire doesn't get lost, right? When you track through the scriptures, you find that when God is again present in a unique way at Sinai in Exodus 19, he tells them, I did not just do this for you. I delivered you from Egypt, but it wasn't just so that you could now do you. I did not rescue you so that you could now live your best life. 
I brought you out and bore you on eagle's wings and with an outstretched arm and signs and wonders, I delivered you and raised you from the dead even while you were prostituting yourself in an adulterous way in Egypt. I came and rescued you. And I did it because I want something. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. I did it because I want something. He said, I want a people that will relate to me the way that I've longed to have a people relate to me. He says, I'm longing to have a people. This is the, the, the offering. It's the, uh, the proposal of sorts in Exodus 19, 5. And it begins with if. That's why it's a proposal. If you will listen to my voice and obey my commands, then you will be to me a holy possession. And I will make you to be a holy nation, a people that are a royal priesthood. We see God's heart burning for a priesthood, for a people that will prioritize presence and that will actually honor sacred space with God. Sacred space from the idea of Eden is so precious to the Lord. And if we'll be honest, it's precious to us too. It's why in what we've known in the conditioning of relating to church as an event in a physical structure or in a building of sorts. It's why the idea of it has piqued our interest in the way that it has over time. It's because we ready ourselves to come and meet with God in the place where so many others are saying, He's there. Because we understand that God longs and His invitation is for sanctuary with His people. And so in some cases, we've even called these buildings a sanctuary because our hearts long for sacred space with God. Our hearts long and burn to have a place where God abides and we can be with Him and meet with Him and fellowship with Him in an ongoing way. And sacred space means nothing other than a place that's devoted. It's a particular place that's devoted, most oftentimes experienced in a religious order. But God offers sanctuary. He offers sanctuary in himself. Come to me. He offers refuge in himself. Refuge is a place of safety, preservation, and immunity. And we long for what we find in the person and in the presence of God. This refuge, for the name of the Lord, is a strong tower. And those who run into it They find their refuge. They find their safety. They find their immunity of sorts. Where we become protected and preserved from what is the influences and the elements outside of the dominion or the banner of God's own person and presence. And we find that God's consistency in what it is that he desires is there in Exodus 19. I want a people that will be mine. They will be peculiar. Because they will honor me and they will prioritize my presence. Uniquely enough, you turn the page and in Exodus 20, it's the prescription for priesthood. Or it's the Ten Commandments. And as you keep turning, you find that throughout the remainder of the book of Exodus, there is detailed instruction to Moses on how to build the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is going to be a physical reference point. The tabernacle is going to be a reminder that God has not lost the desire of Eden. 
that he longs to have a place upon the earth with his people where he can abide in the midst and their whole life can be reoriented and calibrated to the person in the presence of God, where Jesus over everything won't just be a mantra of sorts, where it won't just look nice on Christian merch, but that it will actually be the holy jealousy and the possession of a people, where there will be a divine possession that actually brings out of the abundance of their heart the language that gets released off their lips, where there's consistency between language and lifestyle, and there's not this chasm where you can listen to me but don't get close to me because the things that I say are not actually the things that I do. And God says, I'm going to give you great detail because I long to have a place in the earth where I can abide in the midst of my people. This is what I want. This is what I'm after. And so we have Moses with the the container of what is the reference point of sacred space again. Because the God that is everywhere wants to be somewhere. Then we have David who doesn't just give us the design of tabernacle of how to create a reference point, the place where God is in the tent of meeting, where he would come down and meet with Moses and fire and cloud and glory and awe and wonder would fill the community as they knew God was present in their midst. David just doesn't give us what is the blueprint for a tabernacle where God would visit. But he gives us what is the the launching of sorts, of a divine order, night and day, day and night, relating to God through the place of worship and adoration and prayer and intercession, where a lifestyle of priestly ministry unto the Lord, living in response to the beauty and the worth of the man Jesus, and giving him what it is that he not only desires, but what it is that he deserves. David showed us not just how to set it up, but how to consistently linger and remain. And then we come to what is the New Testament, and uniquely, or oddly enough, what is another container where we find God's abiding presence. If Eden was a space that God created, that he longed to share himself, and the tent of meeting was a reference point in a container, it was a space where God longed to share himself. And the tabernacle of David, Amos 9, 11, for in those days I will repair and restore the fallen tabernacle of David. And the consequence of the resurrection or the reestablishing of the tabernacle of David is the harvesting of the Gentiles. It's mission, and that's because you can't get close to a heart that burns for the nations and not begin to burn for the same thing that that heart is burning for. But when we come to the New Testament, we have these verses that we're all familiar with. Acts 2. Peter gets up to preach. He lets it rip on the day of Pentecost. He preaches, you crucified him, but he's coming again. And is your heart ready for that? You had your way with him, but it was all a part of his wisdom. You thought you were overpowering, but God was actually underpowering. Are you ready to see him again? 
And we know that 3,000 are added. And it says that now in verse 42 of Acts 2, they. There are certain words that should destroy all of our individualistic, self-righteous appraisals of our lives. When you pray, pray this way. Our. Not my, not yours, our. That should shatter what is our desires for individuality in the place of an individualistic way of life. Meaning severed, isolated, separate from the proximity to the people of God that would immerse me in a shared way of life together. And now they who were together, they, they, daily devoted themselves to. And Acts is communicating to us another container. It's communicating to us another reference point for what is the conditions or the context of sorts where God desires to be uniquely present. The communication here is explicit in the idea that them taking on a particular form or way in a shared experience created what was the context that God saw as conducive to his unique abiding. And their shared way of life with a variety of ingredients, equal emphasis on a variety of ingredients, not becoming specialists and going all in with one facet of what is the experience or the privilege of the people of God. They weren't corporate meeting folks. They weren't prayer meeting folks. They weren't organic community. We're only going to share meals together, folks. They were the people of God who understood a real recipe of sorts with all of its varying ingredients and the necessary components to create the context that God longed to have for himself where he could once again reveal of himself a unique place of abiding. And so they daily devoted themselves to what was a corporate experience, the apostles' teaching. Solomon's porch, and I know we know the particulars. They had corporate meetings. They had house meetings. They had times together in prayer. They shared their meals with simplicity and gladness. They shared their journeys, right? Because you can have proximity to the people of God and not necessarily ever open up your life or journey. They shared their journeys to journey together. They had shared interests. They shared their resources they shared their finances. They shared with one another so that none among them had any need. Man, you want to know a Holy Ghost-infused verse? Acts 4. And no man laid claim to his own possessions as if they were his own. Well, I'll just let you know right now, God's going to have to do something in order for that to be authentic. No man laid claim to his own possessions as if they were his own. They shared their interests their resources, their finances. They worshiped together. They interceded together. They fasted together. They were together in a shared way of life. And in this shared way of life, it created yet again another unique container of sorts in order for God to have a context, a reference point upon the earth in order for him to abide and to have this habitation we recognize Ephesians 2.22, 
your lives now knit together is the unique place or space that God is building for himself by the power of his own spirit to create a habitation. The place where God is here. Where the Lord is in our midst, walking again in the cool of the day. Where God has what it is that God wants. And it's a people that are a holy possession. It's a people that have been rescued. A people that have been delivered. A people that are alive from the dead. And they're together as the people of God. And Acts 2 is communicating to us yet again the container. The details. It's giving us the the, the prescription It's giving us the strategy for how to build what is the context for God to invade and to be present yet again upon the earth. And one of the aspects of their way of life together, again, because it was equal emphasis. If you pulled one of the apostles to the side, let's say Charisma Magazine was going to interview Peter or John. Bro, listen, man, your church is blowing up, dude. Like, like y'all are the hottest thing in Jerusalem right now. Y'all have got church growth in an unprecedented way. Man, the Lord is blessing what it is that y'all are doing. You're exploding. You're bursting at the seams. Give us the secret sauce. I don't think these guys would have been like, it's the corporate meeting. I'm just letting you know, man. Like, you got to have a banging corporate experience. You got to have the right demographic on your worship team for the people that you're trying to reach. You got to be relevant with the look and the feel. I'm telling you, man, if you put the lights like this and you release the smoke to this temperature and I'm just saying, I don't think these guys would have been so deceived as if to believe that there was one facet of their experience in a shared way of life that was of greater importance than any of the others. Um, that they are interdependent, they are interconnected. They feed off of and into one another. Uh, It's the puzzle pieces, it's the whole pie where presence in the center creates the prioritization of all of what is everything else about our way of life that exists because of the womb in the center of us, which is the prioritization of God himself and things that are birthed in our midst are coming out of presence and we're not just doing things and forming things and then begging God to put his presence on it. And in their shared way of life together, one of the realities that they shared was what I earlier mentioned as the Lord's Supper. It was the table of the Lord. In a family meal experience, instituted, we know, not just by Jesus. Jesus was celebrating the Passover. That we understand. Communion is not a New Testament idea. In the days of their Passover and their deliverance from Exodus, they were to eat the whole lamb. They were to have the unleavened bread and to partake of what was the elements. And year after year, celebrating their Passover. And we know that before Jesus willfully, joyfully handed himself over. In Matthew 26, in Mark 14, in Luke 22, he is at the table with those that he's sharing his life with. And in a family-style meal experience at the table of the Lord, Jesus says, I long to share this with you again. 
Hear that. I long to share this experience with you again. But I will restrain until that great day in my Father's kingdom. And Paul says that he had received something from the Lord because he wasn't actually present to be a participant like the others were in what was that family meal experience. And in Corinthians, Paul says that in this shared meal experience, that as often as we do it, the second half of Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, as often as you do this, it is proclaiming the death of the Lord. We understand that the table of the Lord, this family meal, was something that was powerful and had purpose in the midst of the people of God. In the beginning days of planting our church in Orlando, we have Habitation Church in Orlando. In the beginning days of planting and in our planting efforts, we used to cry out to God. And we used to say, rally people to a work and give us something that looks more like tables in the center of us than it does stages and pulpits. We long to have something of a family orientation where the table in the center of us became the great equalizer to the people of God. Where it didn't matter if you were a pastor or a plumber. If you were an evangelist or if you were a corporate CEO of a Fortune 500 organization. If you were a stay-at-home mom or you were a barista at Starbucks in an academic pursuit as a college student trying to figure your life out. Because our value is in our identity and a priestly posture and not what is the particulars of a unique assignment that God may put on our lives. And the table becomes one of the equalizers in a shared way of life. There is no greater equalizer to the people of God than a shared way of life. Where sacred space together creates a divine order. Where praying together, fasting together, weeping together, celebrating together, eating together, raising our kids together, going to the park together, going bowling together. All of these things does not necessarily matter on the distinction of your assignment. Because the church honestly has done a terrible job at making the stay-at-home mom feel just as valuable as the person who preaches week after week. As the decorated, star-studded worship leader and the college student who's trying to figure their life out. And we've ascribed value to assignments rather than to identity. And it's left people with contempt where the business owner feels like the pastor will never understand him because he doesn't have to work a real job. And you'll never understand my life because all you do is have coffee meetings and meet people for breakfast and meet with folks and say you're going to pray about ministry endeavors and ah, da, 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 whatever. And there's all this hostility in the people of God because we've created totem poles of value based off of assignments rather than the prioritization of a priestly posture. Where the ultimate concern and jealousy and obsession of our lives is are we relating to God together the way that he desires and deserves? 
and out of actually creating history with God. Yes, individually, I get that. You cannot delegate you building history for yourself with the Lord. You have to obey Matthew 6 for yourself. But there is a corporate reality to priesthood that God longs for us to have. And part of the experience of that is the table of the Lord. Where the table in the center of us proclaims, as Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 11, it's a reminder to us of our deliverance. It is what makes us oh so aware again that none of us actually deserve to have our seat at the table. That none of us are entitled to the chair that we sit in. That the reality of Ephesians 2 where he came and preached peace to those of you that thought you were near and to those of you that felt as if you were far. And he redeemed you and he restored you and reconciled you to his eternal purpose to have a people that he longs to share himself with. The table when we lay it down in the middle of us And when we come to it time and time and time again to celebrate, yes, the communion aspect and elements, but as often as we find ourselves at tables together in a shared meal experience, it is a demonstration of our redemption. It is a living evidence and a witness of us together as the people of God. It is a celebration of being alive from the dead and being reconciled to a God that longs to share himself in particular space with people. And Paul said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance because it proclaims the death of the Lord. But we don't only look back in a historical way. Though we celebrate what's behind us, Psalm 124, had it not been for the Lord that was on my side, Man, I was doing an amazing job of ruining my life, and God still pursued me. In the most broken, dark, devastating hole I had ever known, God lavished his love on me. When I didn't even believe that he existed, I didn't want anything to do with him. I was hostile. I was a rebel in my own attention, appetites, and affections. God came looking for me. But we don't only look back in a historical way. Even though the table in the midst of us does proclaim the Lord's death. It proclaims the Lord's death and resurrection power that has so graciously and extravagantly been demonstrated in our lives. But it does not only proclaim in a historical way. The table also provokes. The table is a provocative The table is an evangelistic tool of sorts. The table is a missional aspect to the life and the community and the purpose of the people of God. Jesus was scandalized and persecuted all throughout the book of Luke with this phrase. The son of man came eating and drinking. Because he chose to share meals with people that the world had written off. He chose to expose himself to times at the table with the underdog, with the castaway, with the write-off, with those who were broken, those who were lost in the sway of the world, 
He chose to share meals and use the table in an evangelistic way in order to preach and to proclaim and to prophesy to people in love and with a demonstration of his own life and time, stopping everything else that he could have had going on in order to eat with prostitutes, tax collectors, people that the rest of the world considered not to be worthy. And it's no different in the ancient world than it is today. The table is something that we use in a way to create exclusivity. The table is something that we utilize in order to create leverage in the place of relationship. The table is something that we put down between us in order to demonstrate the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The table is something that we use in our favor in order to display who we know and what we have and where we're going. And we share meals with people in a transactional way because we're incentivized to benefit from a person or their journey or what they have to offer. But Jesus was not this way. And this is exactly what Paul chastises and rebukes the Corinthians for. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 2, he says, At least I praise you because you're trying to hold to the traditions. He said the same thing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. I've observed that you're at least keeping to the traditions, praise God. But to the Corinthians, he says, I give you praise that you're at least holding to the traditions. But you've got a rebuke coming. Because rather than the table demonstrating the power of the gospel and a separation from the sway of the world and the influence of rulers and powers... The table is actually perpetuating the influence of powers in the midst of you. And it's affecting the testimony of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, and the reality of the power of the gospel. He says when you get together, not only are you not waiting for each other, you're not prioritizing each other. Some of you are eating and drinking before others even arrive. Man, some of you are drunk. Like, bro, can't you drink at home? He's like, in your corporate time together, and the experience of sharing what is the table of the Lord. It is to provoke the world and not perpetuate the influence that's in the world. Because the church, as a family, as the people of God, is to be the place where the world looks and gets to see what it looks like to live free from the powers. The world is supposed to look and see. That's what it looks like. To not be bound by darkness. To not be crippled and riddled by addiction. To not be overwhelmed and eaten up with unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and separation and prejudice and preference and the prioritization of your own interests and desires and the transactional disgust of treating people according to what you want rather than being a living witness and an evidence and a demonstration of what God wants. He says we have to deal with how you're coming to the table because the table is no longer provoking the table is actually destroying the testimony of the gospel among you. In chapter 1, he says the things of the Spirit must be spiritually discerned. He says because our fleshly 
intellectualism and our own consideration of enlightenment. Right? That, that was the issue. Right? They felt enlightened. Now you can determine good and bad for yourself. You can now rule over your own life. And you can decide the way that you should take. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the things of the Spirit actually have to be spiritually appraised and discerned. Because God uses weakness to destroy man's strength. God uses foolishness in order to expose and to conquer what is the, at times, deception of our human fleshly intellectualism outside of what is real spirit, life, and power at work on the inside of us. And I know that often we look at tables and don't see the purpose or God's power attributed to a table because it's so common. It's so normal. It's so practical in the place of our day-to-day. It's not the grand, sexy experience that we're looking for in the consideration of what the people of God are to be about. But Paul says that as we live our lives as ambassadors, representatives, priests with a priestly posture, that we are heavenly colonies. You're not an American Christian. You're not a black Christian. You're not a white Christian. You're not a Republican Christian. You're not a Democrat Christian. You're a believer. You're one that's born again and alive from the dead. And we are planted in America like Daniel to be free enough from the American dream and the influence of an American culture to actually serve God's purposes and to fulfill God's power in America by not being captivated or not being conquered by what is the delicacies being pushed across the table and the feast or the diet of a culture in America. And it's offensive when you tell people that they need to be delivered from their Americanism so that they can actually serve God the way that he desires. And man, if that shoe fits, just wear it. And wear it with grace. And like walk this thing out with the Lord. And like get over things that are not actually places of identity in our lives, no matter how hard we long to have identification with certain things. And Paul tells them, you're utilizing the table in a way that is revealing the influence of powers rather than destroying it. The table is revealing that you still have pride. You still have prioritization according to your own interests. You still have preference and prejudice. These things are on display whenever you rally together rather than it giving the influence of it having been destroyed. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul encourages and exhorts. He says, don't quench the spirit. And when he says don't quench the spirit, it's not the harness for charismania where you can reel people in according to your own interests for how a gathering is supposed to go. Where, well, Sister Sally Mae is clapping when no one else is clapping. Rebuke her. She's quenching the spirit. Well, brother so-and-so got up and ran a lap when we were all enjoying a quiet moment together. Get him out of here. He's quenching the spirit. 
No, in 31 and 32, Paul tells us as he agonizes over the testimony of Jesus in, the community of, in a community of people. Ephesians 4.30, he says, don't quench the spirit. And then in 31 and 32, he says, shepherd your hearts. Evaluate your heart to see if there's any envy, if there's any bitterness, if there's any anger, wrath, malice, if there's any hatred, hostility. I'm putting together a variety of translations. Some of you are like, the verse isn't that long. But in a variety of translations, it communicates a broader and, and fuller point. And in verse 32, he says, but as God was in Christ, being tender and kind and long-suffering, and as he was forgiving with you, so be forgiving toward one another. If the church is the place where the world is supposed to look on and see and be provoked by to have a witness or a demonstration of what it looks like to live free from the powers, then we have to consider the influence of the powers in our own lives. Ephesians 2 tells us clearly the agenda of the powers is to influence us toward a self-indulgent way of life that prioritizes or makes ultimate what I feel and what I think. That is the agenda of the powers. And the powers are longing to get traction or influence in your feelings and your thought life. 2 Corinthians 10. Our weapons are not worldly, but they are divine by design. They have actual power. And we are coming against and tearing down every high-minded thing that would want to exalt itself above the knowledge of God. We are destroying strongholds, which is thoughts that have lingered longer than they were supposed to. And because they lingered longer, they actually came into agreement. And through agreement, they take root. And in rooting, they establish what the Bible calls a stronghold, which is a lens to see and to interact with people and circumstances in life. And Paul says it's the very thing that the gospel has now privileged us to be set free from. Consider the joy of Jesus to set a people free from the bondage and the captivity of the powers. I asked my kids, tell me what the Bible is about. And they were like, what do you mean? I said, well, you have to do book reports in school, right? And they were like, we do. I said, for your book reports, one of the questions that they ask is what was the theme of the book? And they were like, oh, yeah. I said, what is the theme of the Bible? And they were like, uh, and they gave a bunch of amazing answers. I mean, it was great. I was like, the Bible actually has a theme to it. There is an actual narrative launched in the beginning, revealed in the beginning, and consistent all the way through the close of the book. There is a desire that is embedded in the story that unveils or reveals God himself and what he wants. This is part of the theme of the Bible. It's the story of God. It reveals to us who he is and what he wants. 
And in it, we discover how God is going to overthrow the powers and reestablish or restore his desires to have a people for himself in the place of priesthood. All things reconciled. Everything restored under the headship, the leadership, and the love of the man Jesus. And Paul says, when you come to the table, your table is not actually revealing that this influence has been destroyed in you. It is not proclaiming that you have been freed from the traction of the influence of powers because you are still embracing and agreeing and catering to and making accommodations for certain influence that you have come into agreement with. He says the table is supposed to be something that provokes the world around us, where they see the expression of one new man, where they see every tribe, every nation, every tongue, where it doesn't matter what side of town you grew up on, how much money you had, what your parents did, what color your skin was. It doesn't matter what vibe you had or all of these other things that are distinctions that we make accommodation for in how we segregate and separate and prefer and prioritize. But Paul says your table is supposed to provoke because it's supposed to reveal something that only God could actually produce in the midst of you. It's supposed to put people together that have no business being together. It's supposed to see people not just together putting up with one another, but actually prioritizing one another, being willing to lay down their lives for one another and being made to be family with one another. And as they're conformed to his image as a priesthood relating to God together in a way that only God's spirit could accomplish. But Paul rebukes them and he says, your table's not actually doing this. And we realize that the table just doesn't proclaim and the table just doesn't provoke, but the table also prophesies. The table also prophesies. Ephesians 3.10, and now to the church, bearing the responsibility for the display of the manifold wisdom of God and to bring instruction or to prophesy to powers. When powers look at the people of God, they should be reminded that their influence in the hearts and in the lives of people has been broken through the price that Jesus paid for his inheritance. And that what his father has promised him, the power of God's own life and spirit is at work throughout the nations in order to make good on the promise that the father has made to his son that he is going to have a people from every people, that Jesus is deserving of a people from every people. And when powers see the people of God, they should be reminded that Jesus is going to get what he paid for. And they should understand that as we lean in closer towards the end of the age, which is going to be the real unveiling and the final eviction notice, that their time of jurisdiction is coming to an end. It should bring them instruction that Jesus is going to get what he paid for and that their time is running out. And we understand that all of our lives, 
are headed towards what we recognize to be as this Revelation 19 marriage supper of the Lamb. Where in Revelation 19, we are again experiencing or realizing that on that great day, the banquet table of the Lord spread out in the greatest and most energetic, and energetic even seems like a cheap way to say it, celebration the world has ever seen. There's going to be a table. And that table is going to be a banquet table. And the bridegroom will stand with the bride. And there will be a celebration greater than anything the universe has ever experienced. And the love of God unleashed upon a people that he has always desired to have in this way as a possession will be known in the fullest measure that God has always wanted. But we know that there's a table ahead of us. And when powers see the people rallied around the table, it should be a prophetic reminder and declaration that there's another table coming. There's another table coming. That you see our table here and now in an immediate sense and we're doing the best that we can and with our weak reach and our broken efforts and all of our failed attempts, God, we're trying to partner with grace and we're trying to be the people of God and we long to relate to you the way that you want a people to relate to you. But make no games about it. When you see this table, this table prophesies that there's another table on its way. There's another table on its way. And here and now, in a broken world system, here and now, in a culture saturated with corruption, here and now, even while there's still, even though temporary as it may be, the jurisdiction, the tension, the influence of rulers and powers, the swirl in the world and the prince of the power over the air, the pattern of this world itself, right in the middle of it is where God plants the table. In Exodus 24, when he revealed himself on Sinai, he called them up in chapter 24. And it says that Moses and Aaron and Abinadab and others, 70 others as a matter of fact, 70 being a very particular number, 70 hostile nations rebelling against God, 70 people groups in Genesis 10, rebelling against God and his love and leadership, no longer having the desire to have to be subject to him and to relate to him, reject him and rebel against him. When they build the tower in chapter 11, it's not just some fancy construction project. We know where you are. We're going to be our own people and make a name for ourselves. And we're coming up there to find you and overthrow you. Well, in Exodus 24, after God again reveals himself on Sinai in chapter 19, he invites them up the mount. And as they come to the top of the mount in Exodus 24, 9, 10, and 11, it says, Moses Aaron, Abinadab, and 70 of the elders of the people come up and they behold God on the top of the mount. And God is present in a unique way. And they together get to experience the person of God. And underneath the feet of the appearance of God in the form of a man, it says that there's a crystal sea that looks like sapphire. 
And what's interesting about these verses is that it says they beheld the Lord together there as they ascended the mount together to be with God. But it says that they ate together and drank together in the presence of the Lord. That there on the top of the mount, think about how, I'm going to, I'll say it in a joking way, think about how petty this is. Think about how petty this is. Seventy people groups throughout the region rebel against God. We don't want anything to do with you. And what does the Lord say? I'm going to form a people that want something to do with me. And I'm going to invite them to come up to the top of the mount. And with the rest of all of the hostility watching, in the presence of rebels, in the presence of powers, in the presence of enemies, I'm going to call a people up to the top of the mount and I'm going to set down a table in the presence of my enemies. And I'm going to feast and enjoy a time together with the people that I have made to be the people of God. And this priestly posture from a priestly people ascending and beholding and delighting and enjoying now leads to a banquet table where on the mount in the presence of all of the rebels, God says, watch this. I'm going to get what it is that I want. And I'm going to bring a people up and they're going to eat with me. And this table is going to be a declaration that there's another table that is ahead of you. The prioritization of the table is not just some practical, cultural, ethnic-driven nonsense. It's not, well, you care about meals together because you're Latin and that's just Hispanic culture. It's not because you're from a particular region. It's not because you're of a particular skin color. It's because there is a divine possession. It's because God longs to have a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And part of our way of life together is the prioritization of this table, this family-style meal experience where God is in the midst and we've come to dine and to feast. And in Psalm 23, (laughs) verse 5, for you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil And my cup overflows. As the people of God, it is of utmost importance that we establish and prioritize the table of the Lord in the midst of us. Where as often as we find ourselves at tables together, sharing meals together, celebrating our redemption, our reconciliation encouraging one another and finding him in each other's eyes and faces. It is of utmost importance that we discern the power and the purpose of this table that God has put down in the midst of us. It is of utmost importance that we don't simply dismiss because of our own fleshly evaluation and estimation where we completely disregard the potential that's attached to this table 
and the purpose that God longs to see advanced and accomplished by, yes, our rallying around this table together as often as we do this, but then on us actually being a people of hospitality and opening up our tables in a missional way, in an evangelistic way, to a broken world that needs to be provoked by a person willing to stop everything else they're doing and share time and space with a person that feels undeserved of such an experience. I came to encourage and to refresh you with things I believe you're already jealous for. Prioritize the table of the Lord. Prioritize the table of the Lord. And give yourself in a deeper way to the things that you're already jealous for. And I pray that the Spirit with real power would use the things that have been shared to create a different lens or framework where we wouldn't be able to sit at tables together with a perspective that would prioritize our own unique interests. But where our table would, yes, proclaim but that it would also provoke and that it would also prophesy. And where we as the people of God, emptied and having the influence of powers conquered in our own hearts and lives, would be the witnesses that Jesus said he longed to have for himself. And where we together would be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And where we would give God what he wants of our own lives, meaning our devotion and the idea of our life being sacred space, but then our shared way of life together being sacred space before the Lord that creates the container or the reference point for God to once again be uniquely present the way that he wants to. I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me if you would. This isn't the kind of encouragement or word where you would lay hands on people for. <laughs> share a table, share a table, share a table, share a table. Go eat with somebody, go eat with somebody. <laughs> but I'm believing that uh, something that only the Spirit can do, that what matters to the Lord, that we would begin to make it matter in the midst of us. That what matters to the Lord, that God would give grace for us to make matter what he says matters. And especially in inaugural days and in the days of planting and pioneering and launching in the beginnings, don't despise the day of beginnings. But in the days of beginnings, the details matter. These are conversations Josiah and I have been having over these days. And the table of the Lord, I pray that it would be a centerpiece of sorts. Or when you take the, the wooden beam that he was lifted high and stretched wide on, and you lay it down in the center of a community and of a people, and God begins to call people to it. And he begins to make himself uniquely present whenever you rally around it. Paul says, as often as you do it, discern it. As often as you do it, discern it.
as often as you do it, discern it. Lord, I, I pray that as we are rallied here this evening, that you would touch every heart in the way that you desire to. That you would lift the veil of sorts that has blinded from being able to appreciate the beauty of what to others just seems so common, so casual, so mundane, so normal. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see that a spirit of wisdom and revelation would come upon your people to be able to break all of just what is the cultural facades and the agendas that are associated with meals and tables and where together we as the people of God would have a prioritization for, yes, you and your person and your presence, but also the Lord's Supper, this family-style meal together as the people of God where we would come together and feast upon the one who is the bread of life. And in your constant coming, you would have a place where you could be uniquely present. Lord, this is what our hearts long for. We want you to have this place of abiding. Have your habitation here in Orange Beach. Have the context that is conducive for God to once again walk in the cool of the day and to be among and in the midst the way that you long to be, Lord. May the people here, the people of God here, as others look on, even if they don't understand, may they look with awe and say, God is there. God is with them. God is among them in their shared way of life. And Lord, would you do something in our hearts to where we would prioritize this table? Where we would prioritize this table? Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Establish and root the table in the midst of us. Where it would rally us. And it would help to create a, an equal among us, where we would find ourselves honoring and preferring, where we would find ourselves celebrating and weeping, where we would find ourselves sharing our own lives and interests and journeys with others, that in times past, in seasons past, we would have said, you have no interest to me because you don't seem to benefit me in any way or the things that I want. But Lord, would you do something in the midst of us and make it real, Lord? Lord, release real power to destroy the preference. Release real power to destroy the prejudice. Release real power to conquer the influence of the rulers and powers that at times gets our agreement to be separate to be other than, to be hostile, to be bitter and unforgiving, to judge and to criticize and to use the table as leverage rather than as evidence. Lord, help us and do something in us. Help us and do something in us, Lord. Where the table would reveal the power of the gospel and not the lack thereof. 
do something in us, Lord, where this family meal, this celebratory experience would be a testimony to the world and a prophetic utterance and experience to powers. Do something in us, Lord. Man, I just feel as if the Lord wants us to take a few moments to evaluate what is actually alive in our hearts. Things that maybe you've never even communicated to another living person. But God knows. Even as we were already exhorted, you know the meditation of my heart and my thoughts. Lord, you know me. You know at times the people that I don't prefer. Lord, you know at times the hostility or the animosity that's at times uniquely still alive on the inside of me, Lord. I need your help. I need your help, Lord. I need your help to deal a death blow to the influence of powers in me. Where I can see the beauty in people's value where I can again see the beauty in people's value. And let us evaluate our own hearts. If there's unforgiveness, if there's bitterness, if there's judgment, if there's criticism. None of us are perfect. I'm not saying that at times we won't be influenced by these things. What I'm suggesting is coming into agreement with these things where we feel entitled to feel the way that we feel, where we feel justified in feeling the way that we feel or living with the lens that we do. Lord, we need your help. We need your help, Lord. I pray that the prioritization of the table in this people that you're forming for yourself, give it power and make it missional. Give it power and make it missional. May it be redemptive. May it be something that reconciles. May it be something that evangelizes. May it be something that displays an outrageous generosity of the love of God towards people that feel undeserved. Lord, establish it and give power and purpose to it in the midst of this people. You are forming a people for your own holy possession here, Lord. Have your way, King Jesus. Have your way, King Jesus, and get what you want here in Orange Beach. Get what you're after. Holy Spirit, make good on that promise, and may the inheritance of Jesus be full a people from Orange Beach. Have your way, Lord. I'll make this last comment and then I'll hand it over to Josiah and whatever you feel, man, as far as where we're going. Paul's discerning of the table was so precious to him. That in Galatians 2, when he opposed Peter to his face, it was because of 
Peter's approach to the table was revealing distortion rather than deliverance. And he said, I had to oppose him to his face because of the ripple effect, because of the influence of that behavior in the community of faith and amongst the people of God would be so devastating if it actually got traction. And because of my discerning of how precious that table is to the Lord, I had to confront him and rebuke him. Paul wasn't just some rebel with his own personal agenda, but what mattered to the Lord mattered to him. And he longed to see God have what it was that God wanted. 